chapter 5. Daniel chapter 5. Yep, it's on. Daniel chapter 5. So, I haven't spent a whole lot of time talking about this, but I want to give you an overall uh, outline of the book of Daniel. Daniel's divided into what I would say three parts. Daniel chapter 1 is primarily Daniel's personal history. It talks about how he got to Babylon. It talks about his integrity and his character while he's in Babylon. Um, but then from ch- uh, part 2 is chapter 2, ver- two through uh, chapter 7, which I believe is a prophetic plan for the Gentiles. And over and over again, there's been dreams to these uh, Gentile kings about the future of nations, the future of the leadership, specifically of these Gentile nations. And then in part 3, chapter 8 through 12, we'll get a prophetic plan for Israel. So we get the future plans from God about the Gentiles, and then we get the future plans from God for the Israelite nation. So that said, we are right in the middle and towards the end of part two, which is the prophetic plan for the Gentiles. And in there, we, if you remember with me, Daniel has been shipped away from his country against his own will, but when he gets there, he still lives a faithful life towards God, even though he's not surrounded by anybody aside from a few men that have the same faith that he does in Yahweh the Lord. So he gets there, and instead of living for the world, he's living in an ungodly nation, he decides, I'm going to obey God anyway. Even though no one's looking, he lives with integrity towards God. And I've heard it said that character and integrity can be proven in what you will do when no one else is looking. Well, Daniel recognizes that God is always looking, and he wants to live righteous before God. So in chapter 5, we find that Nebuchadnezzar is no longer on the scene. Nebuchadnezzar was the king when Daniel got there. He was the king when uh, Nebuchadnezzar has had dreams that he's needed interpreted. He was the king just in the last chapter, who we find out was actually humbled by God, his sanity taken from him, and he becomes this man that gets on all fours and is in a field eating grass. God takes away his sanity to show him that I am over all nations. Even though you're a sovereign king, and Nebuchadnezzar was probably one of the the most powerful kings that's ever existed, and the only one that will be until Antichrist, we see the government that's raised up, a Babylonian-style government that has one ruler in Revelation chapter 18, at the end of things, as it were. So Nebuchadnezzar has this kingdom that is huge, And what he says goes. If someone's going to be killed, he gets to make the decision and no one questions it. They do his bidding. What he says goes. And so at this point, we see Nebuchadnezzar being humbled and then he's raised up in the last chapter in Daniel chapter 4. And then seemingly time has passed on and we get to chapter 5 and Nebuchadnezzar is no more. And we know that about rulers. Even if they're good or bad or otherwise, their rules come to an end at some point. So in Daniel chapter 5, it starts with verse 1, Belshazzar the king. Belshazzar the king made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in the presence 
of the thousand. So let's stop there because who's Belshazzar? And I told you a few weeks ago that I get confused, or I used to, Belteshazzar is what they call Daniel. They renamed him this Babylonian name. But this is not Belteshazzar, this is Belshazzar. And I'm probably butchering the actual pronunciation. But Belshazzar is the son, it seems, of Nabonidus. And Nabonidus is the son of Nebuchadnezzar. So Nebuchadnezzar has passed on, but he's had sons that are taking over his authority. They take up the mantle of leadership in the nation. Nabonidus isn't mentioned here, but many commentators and many biblical scholars say that Belshazzar is basically a regent king. He's another king that shares the rule with his father, Nabonidus, who isn't even mentioned. But we know from historical books that the history shows that, he, uh, that Belshazzar is actually the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, not the son. And so it says there, Belshazzar the king made a great feast for a thousand of his lords, and he drank wine in the presence of the thousand. And while he toasted the wine, Belshazzar gave the command to bring the gold and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple which had been in Jerusalem, that the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple of the house of God, which had been in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. They drank wine, and they praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze and iron, wood and stone. So we have a classic example here of pride. Nebuchadnezzar, in chapter 4 of Daniel, was a, a ruler filled with pride, and because of that, God humbled him. And if you listen back to, next, or to last week's message, basically Nebuchadnezzar was brought down so low that he was eating grass out of a field, and after seven times, which was seven years of this, his hair was long, his fingernails had grown out like eagle's claws, and at that point it says he looked up to heaven and God restored to him his reasoning ability. And at that point, he praises God. So he has this conversion experience that is unheard of. Not just any Gentile, but a Gentile king. And not only that, the Lord, little L, of lords of all the nations at that time has been humbled by God and has revealed to him that God is ruler over all. That God is in control and that God is in charge. He raises up those whom he decides to raise up and he lowers and humbles. He brings low those that he wants to bring low. And he did this in Nebuchadnezzar's life so much that chapter 4 is basically a proclamation that Nebuchadnezzar made to the Babylonian kingdom. He put it down in writing and he mailed it out. And we have it preserved for us in the book of Daniel. It was that important. But fast forward to the next generation. 20 years, that's it. We're not talking 200 years. We're not talking 20 years. And here's Belshazzar. And he has, whether passively or on purpose, made it not his business to know what's happened in the kingdom before him. You ever hear the phrase that says, those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it? 
This is what's going on in Babylon. The God of all creation has revealed himself to the leadership of the Babylonian kingdom, and it's lost within a generation. It's lost. It's not passed on. And so because of that, Belshazzar, we're going to find out, makes some pretty silly moves. Now, I want to talk just a minute about these vessels that they're talking about, these vessels that were taken from the temple of God. In 1 Kings chapter 7, verse 48, these vessels were created. Who created these vessels to go in the temple? Does anybody know? 1 Kings chapter 8, excuse me, chapter 7, verse 48. It says, Thus Solomon had all the furnishings made for the house of the Lord, the altar of gold, and the table of gold on which was the showbread, the lampstands of pure gold, five on the right side, five on the left, in front of the inner sanctuary, with the flowers and the lamps and the wick trimmers of gold, the basins, the trimmers, the bowls, the ladles, and the censers of pure gold, and the hinges of gold, both for the doors and of the inner room, the most holy place, and for the doors of the main hall of the temple. So all the work that King Solomon had done for the house of the Lord was finished. Solomon brought in the things which his father David had dedicated, the silver and the gold and the furnishings. He put them in the treasuries of the house of the Lord. These were the implements that they used in the worship of God. The Jewish nation had this temple. It was no longer a tabernacle that was able to be moved. God had chosen to make his name dwell there in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount. Solomon built this huge, ornate temple with furnishings and with gold and silver that his father had stacked up from conquering other nations. And they were, they were consecrated, which means they were set apart for only one purpose, and that was to help in the worship of God. Now, did they need golden instruments to worship God? No. But they wanted to give their best to God, and so they made these implements. And they made it according to what was told in the law when they were to make these implements. They made them to the same specifications. Now, fast forward to 2 Kings chapter 20. Solomon's passed off the scene. There's other kings that have passed on. And in 2 Kings chapter 20, verse 12 through 19, 2 Kings, I'm still in 1 Kings. 2 Kings chapter 20, we find a king by the name of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was a good king in the nation of uh, Israel. And when he was older in age, he came down with a very deep sickness. And this sickness threatened his life. And so he begs the Lord to extend his life, that he wouldn't die from this sickness. Long story short, the Lord is gracious, and he preserves King Hezekiah's life. Now, many times it's the will of the Lord for us to pass on. And it's not for us to question. But I do not believe that it's a bad thing to pray that the Lord would continue and he would preserve your life. In this case, Hezekiah beseeches the Lord. He begs the Lord, save my life. And the Lord saves his life and gives him an extra almost 20 years. But here's what happened. God gave him his life, and his life was extended. But some of the biggest foolishness 
that happened in Hezekiah's life happened after this incident where the Lord preserved his life. God granted him his petition, and as a result of that, he lived longer, but he made his biggest and most far-reaching mistakes during this extended portion of his life. So when God says, uh, in actually Moses writes in Psalm 90, uh, teach us to number our days, to redeem the time. Uh, we only have a set amount of days. We need to use them wisely. Uh, King Hezekiah, he, he did not. He, he caused a lot of future problems. So in 2 Kings chapter 20, um, verse 12, we find, it says, At that time, Baradak, Baladin, the son of Baladin, king of Babylon, sent letters and presents to Hezekiah, for he heard that Hezekiah had been sick. So he sent letters, and Hezekiah was attentive to them, and he showed them all the house of his treasures, the silver and gold, the spices, the precious ointment, and all his armory, all that was found among his treasures. There was nothing in his house or in all his dominion that Hezekiah did not show to these kings or these representatives of Babylon. So this man's life has been preserved. He's excited about it. He's getting honored by all these other nations. The king of Babylon sends people, ambassadors, to congratulate him. Hey, congratulations. God has preserved you. He's given you favor. We just want to come and meet you. Well, the Babylonian kingdom is known for swallowing up other nations. But Hezekiah is not walking in wisdom. He's not praying about things. He's just kind of like a pound puppy. He's happy to be alive. And so as a result of that, he accepts this flattery, if you will. He allows the ambassadors to come in, and then he shows them all the ways that God's blessed him. Now, that's not a bad thing. But what he didn't know is that these men were representatives from a kingdom that wanted to conquer them. And so he basically brings his enemies in unwittingly and shows them everything that he has. And then what we find out later is they come in and they steal all those things. And so it says in verse 14, Isaiah the prophet went to King Hezekiah and said to him, what did these men say and from where did they come to you? So Hezekiah said, they came from a far country from Babylon. And he said, what have they seen in your house? So Hezekiah answered, they've seen all that is in my house. There's nothing among my treasures that I have not shown them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and what your fathers have accumulated until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left. And they shall take away some of your sons who will descend from you, whom you will beget, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. That's Daniel, right? That's Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael. So Hezekiah said to Isaiah, look at his attitude here. He says, the word of the Lord, which you have spoken is good. For he said, will there not be peace and truth, at least in my days? Hezekiah cared nothing about the next generation. He only was living for himself. So we can learn a lot from that. Hezekiah did not walk in wisdom. He didn't care what happened to the next generation. Even when the Lord told him, you've been foolish, he's like, well, at least I'll experience peace in my day. We have to live for more than ourselves. 
our kingdom will end, but we're handing off this next generation what we have produced, the fruit of our labors. And let me tell you, (laughs) if they're not fruit that's bearing to an eternal kingdom, they're only going to be to our short kingdom. And so these are the implements that are going to be carried off. So then in 2 Chronicles chapter 36, we find out that that is what in fact happened. Nebuchadnezzar came in, he sacked Jerusalem, he took all of these golden instruments back to his kingdom. So back to Daniel chapter 5. These are the vessels that he's speaking about. And God warned them that these would be taken. But notice what Belshazzar does with these instruments. I would submit to you that when Nebuchadnezzar came to faith in Yahweh, when he came to faith in this God of all creation that made the heavens and the earth and humbled him and then brought him back to his right mind, I believe that Hezekiah, or that, I said Hezekiah, Nebuchadnezzar took these implements that he probably had on display And he's like, you know what? I'm going to put these back in storage. I'm no longer that proud that I have these things that I've stolen from this God who's been so merciful with me. But down the road, one generation later, Belshazzar says, hey, we're having this big party. Let's bring out the implements of the nations that we've conquered, especially these instruments, these implements from the God of the Hebrews. So he brings out these implements. He not only drinks from them, which no one was supposed to do, but he also has his amount of wives drink from them and his concubines. And it's this huge display of pride and lack of humility. He has no fear of God whatsoever. And so because of that, he desecrates these implements that were made to worship God and instead worships what? Creation, created things. Gold, silver, wood, bronze, iron. They worship these idols. And so all of that cues up to his judgment. They drank wine and they praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Verse 5 says, In the same hour the finger of a man's hand appeared and wrote opposite the lampstand, on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, and the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. Now, I would submit to you that the hand is actually the implement that was writing. This isn't the hand holding something that's writing with marker like my daughter would do. (laughs) This is is the hand itself, the finger, etching into the plaster this message. And the tense of the word writing in this passage implies that it continually wrote. That the message wasn't just there and then the hand disappeared, but the hand continued to be there, re-highlighting the word and etching into the wall these three words. And so it says there, the response of the king is in verse 6, the king's countenance changed and his thoughts troubled him. The word for countenance being changed, and in some of your Bibles it might say the color left his face. His blood pressure dropped. All of a sudden, he went from this joyous, partying man to a sobered and humbled and scared-to-death man. His color left his face. Have you ever gotten news where it's like you just feel like you've been kicked in the gut and you lose all composure? This is what's happening. All of a sudden, the reality is setting in. This message is written on the wall, and the king's countenance changed. 
His thoughts troubled him, and his joints of his hips were loosened, and his knees knocked against each other. Have you ever been so afraid that you became like one of those cartoons? You ever see the cartoons where someone's afraid and their knees literally knock together? He's nervous. He's losing his cool. This is the leader of the known world at that time who had lords and kings that would bow down to his position and his authority, and he is made to be very exceedingly afraid. And notice his other response, verse 7. The king cried aloud to bring in the astrologers, the Chaldeans, the soothsayers. He cried out. He, he went to where he found comfort and wisdom. He cried out. The king spoke, saying to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple, which is a royal color, have a chain of gold around his neck, and he shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Now, this is one of the reasons that they make a case for Nabonidus being the first in leadership, and then Belshazzar being the second. And whoever answers, interprets this dream or this, this message will be the third. So that's why they say that he would be the third in the kingdom, that these other two men are co-leaders. Whoever reads this writing tells me its interpretation. Now, remember, he doesn't mention anything about Daniel here. He only mentions the astrologers, the Chaldeans, the, the soothsayers of the day. So, seemingly, Belshazzar is completely oblivious of this Daniel who has answered and interpreted every dream that Nebuchadnezzar has had. So, even just in the very fact that he didn't know her, where his dad got wisdom from shows you that what Nebuchadnezzar believed and followed wasn't passed on to his son. And at the same time, it seems that this young ruler never took the time to ask his dad, like, hey, where do you get wisdom from? What's happened in the past? What do I need to know to be a righteous or a good king for this nation? He never asked that. And children don't ask that. Let me submit to you that children don't ask for wisdom. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of the next generation unless we make efforted attempts to pour into them wisdom. Your children will not come to you and ask you for wisdom. They will continue in their folly until someone calls them out and corrects them. And you need to build relationships with people in the next generation to pour into them wisdom. So the king cried out. And then verse 8 says, All the king's wise men came, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king its interpretation. And then King Belshazzar was greatly troubled. His countenance once again was changed, and his lords were astonished. So they're at a loss. There's no interpretation. There's no understanding. There's, they're essentially in the darkness. Nebuchadnezzar, because he did not lead his son to the source of wisdom, left his son without wisdom. And as a generation for us, our responsibility is to lead our children and our friends' children, if need be, and our friends themselves to Jesus. And let me submit to you, if you are not leading your children or anyone else to Jesus, you're not leading them to Jesus at all. You, you can't be passive about it. Let me reword that. If you're not leading them to Jesus, you're leading them away from Jesus. Does that make sense? 
If you're not leading them to Jesus, you're leading them away. There's no neutral. You can't be Switzerland. If you're not leading them to Jesus, then someone else will gain their affections and give them wisdom. It'll be their friends. It'll be their coworkers one day. They will look for wisdom somewhere. Belshazzar, because he didn't know where to go for wisdom, he didn't just not go look for wisdom. He still looked for wisdom in different places. But because he didn't know the God of truth, because he didn't know the God that was really the authority over the kingdom he'd been given, he was, he was without wisdom. And so, verse 10, praise the Lord for moms. The queen, and in some of your translations, it might say the queen mother, because of the words of the king and his lords, came to the banquet hall. The queen spoke, saying, O king, live forever. Now, this is not Belshazzar's wife. This is, many believe, Nebuchadnezzar's wife or Nebuchadnezzar's wife. Either way, she is the position of queen, and moms remember stuff, right? They don't forget. And at just the right time, she gives this wisdom to her son. She says, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts trouble you, nor let your countenance change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy God. And in the days of your father, Light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, now this doesn't mean it was his dad, this is your father, you're the one who went before you. Uh, the, the Israelites called themselves uh, the sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But many of them didn't have them as their father. It was just your forefathers is the idea. And so he says, Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, listing Nabonidus there, made him chief of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers. Inasmuch as an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding, interpreting dreams, solving riddles, and explaining enigmas were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will give the interpretation." I get a drink of water. So wisdom speaks. Mom comes in and says, hey, um, I know your dad didn't tell you about this guy, but there's this guy named Daniel. And Daniel has the spirit of the holy God in him, whatever that means. And he was able to interpret King Nebuchadnezzar's dreams. He was able to give him wisdom in his times of distress, and he is still alive. Now, what I want you to remember about Daniel is that Daniel is a prophet to this nation, the Gentile nation, and we'll find that he's a prophet to multiple kingdoms, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, Nabonidus, Belshazzar, and what we'll find is even when they're overtaken by another nation, Daniel will still be there and given favor with that king and kept on as a wisdom guy. Every kingdom that he serves, they're not his kingdom, but because he lives in wisdom and he walks in righteousness, he is given favor with every single ruler. He stays essentially with several presidents and stays in their cabinet. How cool is that? In our nation, that would never happen because it always changes from 
extreme to extreme, and they're like, hey, we're starting over every time. So we can't make any ground. But Daniel, because he walks in the wisdom of the Lord, uh, he is given favor with every king. And so, mom gives him wisdom. He calls for this man, Daniel. Verse 13, then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king spoke and said to Daniel, are you that Daniel who is in who is one of the captives from Judah, whom my father, the king, brought from Judah. So I want to point out something, and I hope it's obvious, and it might not be. It wasn't to me. This next chapter, Daniel's going to be thrown into the lion's den, okay? Now, I've read all the kids' storybooks. We have several. Uh, I always see Daniel as this young guy getting thrown in the lion's den. But this is 20 years after Nebuchadnezzar. When he moved to Babylon, he was like, around 13 to 18 years old. Nebuchadnezzar's passed on. It's been 20 years since chapter 4. He's in his 80s. So when he gets thrown in the lion's den, he's in his 80s. Daniel, still kicking it. He's not retiring. He's not hanging out somewhere with his 401k. He is serving God in this nation, and he is still hearing from God, and he is still speaking forth the Word of God. I don't know about you guys, but that is encouraging to me. He's still listening for the Lord. He hasn't grown to a point where he's arrived. We are never past learning from God. There's not an age where you just kind of kick it in and and put up the Burke lounger and and stop. God is still willing to use us if we are willing to be used. And so Daniel speaks, verse 15, it says, Now the wise men, the astrologers, have been brought in before me that they should read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not give the interpretation of the thing. Can you imagine Daniel? He's so hesitant probably to go, well, yeah, that's been happening for years. Nothing's changed. Your wisdom, the way you get wisdom, cannot answer or deliver you. You shouldn't be surprised. Your dad went through the same thing. Verse 16, and I have heard of you that you can give interpretations and explain enigmas or mysteries. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to be its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Daniel, I believe being a little bit older, not really caring a whole lot about what anybody thinks, he answers and says before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. Daniel wasn't in it for the money. He wasn't in it for the position. Daniel had already had the position. Verse 18, O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, a kingdom and majesty and glory and honor. He's going to interpret the message But first, he's going to tell him all the stuff he should have and probably did know, but ignored. He's going to recount to him what God had done in the past, and then he'll give him the message. So he says, O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, a kingdom and majesty, glory and honor. And because of the majesty that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whomever he wished, he executed. 
Whomever he wished, he kept alive. Whomever he wished, he set up. And whomever he wished, he put down. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened in pride, he was deposed from his kingly throne and they took his glory from him. Then he was driven from the sons of men. His heart was made like the beasts. His dwelling was with the wild donkeys. They fed him with grass like oxen and his body was wet with the dew of the heavens till he knew that the most high God rules in the kingdom of men and appoints over it whomever he chooses. But you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, although you knew all this. So he's not telling him something new. He's telling him, you saw this, you knew this, and you haven't humbled your heart. It doesn't matter if your parents humbled their hearts to the Lord. If you don't, it doesn't make any difference to you. You and your children, your salvation is different. It's the same, but it cannot be handed down. My parents went to church does not save children. It just doesn't. My parents followed God. I've heard so many people, after having been asked the question, what has God done in your life? Tell a story from 20 years ago. But God is not dead. He does things now. If your most recent story about how God moved in your life was more than a year ago, you better check yourself before you wreck yourself because you're not currently walking with him. God is a God of today, and he wants your heart now. And for your children, he doesn't want them to walk by faith because you do, although that will affect them. He wants them to walk in humility with a contrite heart. If I walk with the Lord my whole life, and my children are always leaning back on what I did, then it won't save them. They have to make it their own. And so, he says, But you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart. Although you knew all of this, you've lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You've brought the vessels of his house before you. You and your lords, your wives and concubines, have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver, gold, bronze, and iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. And the God who holds your breath, the very breath that's in your lungs, in his hand and owns all your ways, you have not glorified. So then the fingers of the hand were sent from him, and his writing was written. And this is the inscription that was written. Many, many, tekel you parson. Find it interesting that there's a hand writing in plaster. Because in the New Testament, there's an instance where a woman is caught in the act of adultery. Now, obviously, it wasn't just her. It was who was with her also. But when they're caught in the act of adultery, and they're surrounded by accusers, what does Jesus do? He leans down, and he takes what I would submit to you is the same hand that spoke and wrote on this wall was the same hand that wrote in the sand. Jesus writing whatever he did in the sand, a message to those that were accusing this woman. And they all departed one by one, and they stopped accusing her. And Jesus said, where are your accusers? And the woman said, they've all left. And Jesus said, neither will I accuse you. Depart and sin no more. A message of grace. I would submit to you, this message is a message 
of grace. God speaks to us. He speaks to ungodly people. He speaks to godly people, and he warns us. And this message, this thing that he's just recounted was a message of warning in and of itself. But here's the deal. He didn't heed the message, therefore it didn't do anything for him. So the message, many, many, tekel, you parson. It's not a sentence. It's three words. It is, uh, this isn't the interpretation, verse 26, of each word. Many, God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and Persians. And then Belshazzar gave, one, gave the command, and they clothed Daniel with purple, put a chain of gold around his neck, made a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. So he interprets the dream. And the dream, or excuse me, the, the message. And the message literally, if we were to write it on our wall, would say numbered, weighed, divided. So you could see the confusion. It was in a language they understood, but they didn't know what it meant. It's like sometimes when you're driving down the road and you see somebody's license plate and they've come up with some letters and numbers and you're like, the whole time if you're following them, you're like, what does that mean? It's going to drive me nuts. It weighed, (laughs) numbered, and divided. They had been weighed as a kingdom and found wanting. They had the glory, they had the splendor, but they didn't have what it took to be righteous in the eyes of the Lord. And particularly, Belshazzar did not glorify God. Therefore, he was going to be taken from his position. And he was taken from his position that very night. Verse 30, that very night, Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, was slain. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Each one of us has a set number of days that we will be given to do and fulfill what God's given us to do. And in many cases, because we do not glorify the Lord with our lives, not only are there consequences for the next generation, but we also cause our lives to be wasted and shortened. I believe that if Belshazzar had been faithful and had taken what God had given him and used it to glorify God, his kingdom would have continued. But on that very night, his life was taken from him and his position, and his authority. Can you imagine Daniel knowing the interpretation, being offered this chain of gold, and this third ruler in all the kingdom goes, what good is it if I'm only going to keep it for a few hours? Your kingdom's over. You don't have any authority anymore. Because of the way that you've lived and denied the Lord, it's done for you. And I think that's interesting for many reasons, but one of which is the history books tell us that six months previous to this, The ruler of the Medes was out and he was frustrated and he wanted to overtake the Babylonian kingdom. Except the Babylonian kingdom was surrounded by a wall that was so wide at the top that you could race chariots six wide. That's how thick. The wall went, many believe, a hundred feet into the ground. That's how deep it was. And it was tall enough nobody could scale it. It was impenetrable. It was the Titanic, unsinkable, unable to be beat. And so what happened with the Titanic, they drove it and they went fast. They didn't pay attention. They ignored the iceberg warnings. And what happened? It sunk. 
the Babylonian kingdom with all of its fortresses and walls. What did they do inside of it? They knew, by the way, that these other kingdoms wanted to come in and destroy them. But what were they doing to prepare for that? Nothing. Because they trusted in their fortress. They're inside getting drunk. They're inside in pride, drinking from the vessels of God and denying his name and his glory. And at the very time that they were doing that, which was six months from the time that they had decided, this other kingdom, they wanted to divert, to destroy the Babylonian kingdom. And so they knew that the Euphrates River was canaled away from its main body of water through the nation of Babylon, and it went under the wall. And as long as the water was at the right height, it flowed through, nobody could get in. But there was a drought that year. And during that time, they diverted the Euphrates River, the canal that gave them water, away from this canal, little bit by little bit, over a six-month period. And on the day that Belshazzar's having this drunken party, this kingdom that wanted to destroy them sent in battalions of men under the wall because the water was no more. And they were halfway into the city before those who were watching the wall even noticed. And at the time that the hand is writing on the wall, <laughs> that battalion was already inside there getting ready to overthrow it as a nation. So what can we learn from this? Turn to 1 Thessalonians <clears throat> chapter 5. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1. Concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. For when they say, in their pride, peace and safety, we're fine. He says, when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, here's the warning to us as believers, but you, brethren, are not in darkness so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. He's not talking about not sleeping at night. He says, let us not walk around with our eyes half closed. Let us not walk around in foolishness. He says, let us be on watch and be sober. For those who sleep, they sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we are awake or asleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another, just as you also are doing. So what I would submit to you is that Belshazzar's days were numbered. He was warned through testimony and then he was warned through this message on the wall. And for us as a nation, we cannot cry out to the unbeliever. We have to, as individuals and as Christ followers, walk in the light and be 
educated and guided by the truth in God's word. Our nation is going to be judged. Our nation is already being judged by our lack of glorifying God with what he's given us. But we can, as individuals and as families, see the writing on the wall, know our days are numbered, and walk in the light and in the hope of God. Uh, Belshazzar was praising the gods that could not save him. And he was drunk on everything, all his pleasures and everything else. But he did not know God, and so it didn't benefit him at all. But we have this warning that we don't have to just go with the flow. We can, by God's grace, hear his word of warning and walk in humility and in righteousness to please him like Daniel did. And as a result of that, we can lead our next generation to do the same, saving them and anybody who would hear them. So let's pray. Father, um, this word is difficult, um, but I, I believe it's for us today. If we do not heed the warning of those in the past, and if we do not learn from history, perhaps we will be those who will be like Belshazzar, so consumed with the things of the world that we'll miss out on the opportunities and on the message that you've given us to trust in. And so, Father, I pray that you would give us faith to believe what your word says, to live it out ourselves, to pass on what we believe to the next generation. In some ways, I think um, I, I can speak for myself. I tell my kids what I believe, but they're actually going to pick up from me what I live. And so, Father, Help us to be sober. Help us to be aware of what we are sowing so that the next generation will reap a harvest of righteousness. May they know Jesus. May they know our stories. I believe that if Nebuchadnezzar <clears throat> had shared his story of salvation with his son, perhaps Belshazzar would have walked with you. Uh, but that's something I guess we'll get to know in eternity, we'll get to meet Nebuchadnezzar and talk to him about it and ask him. But Father, please help us to learn from this and to pass on what we believe and to live out what we believe so that others might see your good works in our lives and glorify our God in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.